On this week's 51%, we speak with a woman who's behind Pow Her the Vote. But if we don't speak out now and create an expectation of action and change, you know, then um, it's much harder to create that change. Meet one woman who was placed in an internment camp during World War II and hear from another who uses four notes to find her place in this world. I'm Allison Dunn, and this is 51%. The Powher New York statewide network of more than 100 organizations has bounded together to ensure that women's voices are magnified and that women vote in the November elections. The nonpartisan initiative Pow Her the Vote aims to protect and expand women's rights in New York, galvanized by the women's marches, Me Too movement, and federal assaults on progressive policies. This social media campaign hopes to inject key issues into the public debate ensure that candidates address issues of importance to women, and drive voters to the polls on Election Day in November. Pow Her the Vote launched on Primary Day, which was September 13th, and the initiative spotlights various issues each week leading up to the general election November 6th, with expert blogs, social media outreach, and online forums focused around Pow Her New York's 10 questions to ask candidates. Topics include child care, better jobs, and equal pay, reproductive rights, violence against women, criminal justice, leadership, and diversity. I spoke with the president of Power the Vote, Beverly Newfeld. Power really uh, grew out of an equal pay campaign that uh, advocates started about 11 years ago in New York, and we were working to raise awareness and, and to push change or to close the wage gap, which I, I think uh, was not a topic a lot of people were talking about then, and um, we have really have done that and, and made some improvements, but what happened along the way is that we realized attaining equal pay is actually quite complex. Um, you know, for women to thrive, they really need, like, supportive uh, workplaces. They need to be safe at home in the workplace and on the streets. They need to be able to determine when and if they have families. So the idea of an equal pay campaign transformed into a much bigger idea, which um, turned into Power New York. Um, we're a diverse intersectional network of organizations across the state and individuals. And a lot of us are working on different issues, but we're collaborating because we see a commonality and we have a shared agenda and a shared goal, and that's women's economic equality in New York. So with that as the platform, how did you arrive at working toward the November election and powering the vote? Right. So, um, you know, Power works to educate, engage, and, and we advocate. So we've done that successfully, and we've been pushing a progressive women's agenda. And, you know, we've passed good laws. We've changed um, harassment uh, policies in New York City and around the state. But it has not been easy. <laughs> and we know that, like, leadership really matters. So looking at the election, we saw that as an opportunity uh, to talk about our issues, to spotlight what matters to women. And we are strictly nonpartisan, um, but we found a way that we could talk about our issues uh, during the election season, and we call it Power Her the Vote, 
because we want people to think about women's issues um, when they go to uh, the voting booth, and we want to encourage them to go to the voting booth. I don't know if uh, people are aware, but like only 34% of voters actually cast their ballot in the last off-year election in New York. Um, and New York is like, uh, I think, on the bottom um, of of the states in terms of voter participation. So we see, see this as a real opportunity to to build on the energy that there's out there right now uh, to get people um, aware, talking, and to get candidates and future elected officials listening. You're not endorsing candidates. We don't endorse anybody, but we'll talk to everybody about, um, you know, things like uh, better jobs and fair pay, uh, violence against women, child care, sexual harassment, equal pay, you know, the really the plight of immigrant women in our communities, um, criminal justice, and uh, something people that I think are very interested in right now is around women's leadership because so many women are taking up um, the gauntlet and they're running for uh, office, which is a sort of an ultimate of, of leadership uh, in our country. So um, that's how we're approaching this. Yes, there's quite an emphasis on women's leadership. There is a record number of women running for office across the country. Not to say we want to put just any woman in office. We don't want to put just anyone in office, no matter the gender. But but do you think what's going on nationally and the attention to women in this vein, is that something that's helping to propel your initiative? I, I think so, for, for many reasons. It, you know, it raises the volume around these issues, and it, it creates understanding um, I think people are women are frustrated because some of the issues that really affect their lives uh, and their families' lives so deeply are not being addressed. So suddenly, you know, the movement around women's rights, uh, the Women's March, and certainly Me Too, really brought attention to what uh, the day-to-day life of, of some women and the challenges that women have. Um, you know, when you talk about sexual harassment, for us, we see that totally connected to economics for women. And, um, you know, it's if you are in a job where you're not safe or comfortable, what are you going to do? You often leave it. It often derails your career. All of these have impact. So um, as we, you know, shine a very bright spotlight on, on these issues, I think it, can, it helps um, New Yorkers, Americans understand um, the the difficulties that women have in, in creating equality, and now you know more than ever before, we're relying on on women's salaries, and um, women are um, about two thirds of women are either co or sole breadwinners. So is this not uh, pin money? You know that we used to talk about uh, women making pin money. This is really uh, a pocketbook issue for families. So the issues for power all have economic drivers. I mean, sometimes we see the connection in a way that other people don't, like sexual harassment. People don't think of it as an economic issue, you know, for women, but it is. And other parts of this, like better jobs, you know, certainly uh, that's something that, that people see. I think what people don't know is that um, the job segregation um, based on gender is um, is just absolutely the norm and that we have to break down those uh, stereotypes and the opportunities. Women need to have opportunities in higher-paying jobs, like in, um, in the STEM field, but also in the trades. These are jobs that people can live on. And um, right now, so many Americans, but so many women, 
work hard and they have jobs, but they're not making ends meet. And, um, you know, that's, I don't think that's what we see as the American dream. You know, we, we really want to create opportunity um, for, for women to succeed and to thrive. And we're going about that, you know, by looking at delving deeper into these issues and seeing what can be done, what can we do as individuals, what can business do, and what can our government do to um, create a more level uh, playing field. When we talk about equal pay, we say the more level paying field, um, you know, for women. Um, and, and it's good for women, it's good for kids, good for families, but it's really, you know, it's good for our whole community. In our case, we're talking about New York. And now you bring up an issue weekly until the November 6th election. That's right. So Power of the Vote is um, really a social media campaign. And uh, every week uh, from September to the middle of November, we talk about uh, an issue um, and we share information. We encourage um, potential voters or everyone to ask candidates, what would you do about child care costs? What would you do um, to reduce uh, sexual harassment in the workplace, et cetera? You know? What would you do um, if you were elected to office in New York State? Uh, will you vote for reproductive rights? Because we have that as a real issue here in, in New York, right? And then um, we have uh, expert bloggers who hold an online conversation every Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. online. Um, and we offer, you know, information uh, for folks to share, questions to ask, and ultimately we'll be um, really encouraging people to get out there and vote on November 6th and have um, their their wishes heard um, and translate all this into uh, hopefully a, a representatives who will then move these issues forward because, you know, people are watching after. It's not just about the election. It's really about creating um, – a government that represents, you know, the people. In our case, we're talking about the needs um, of women, and, and many people here in, in New York feel that that we haven't moved the ball far enough. And then, what happens after November sixth? After November sixth, we uh, we start to work on the specifics of these issues. Um, so, depending, um, I mean, it, you know, in New York, we've had a complicated political system. Um, things might be a little simpler <laughs> in in the years to come. Um, where uh, while we don't really do our bulk of our work is not around uh, legislative advocacy. Some of it is, and many of our partners do push forward, um, you know, different uh, bills and legislation. And you know, you said before something about it's it's not just about um, electing women. It's really about electing um, thoughtful. Uh, representatives who are in touch and are willing to find solutions to real problems that New Yorkers and Americans have. And uh, I can say that because, uh, you know, here in New York we passed one of the strongest paid family leave laws, uh, and that was in a bipartisan way. It was, you know, men, women, um, we don't have trans any transgender, I think, representatives in the legislature right now, but it was all those elected officials working together because people need some paid leave, you know. So um, that's a very exciting development, and it, it just shows it's not about party um, necessarily, and it's uh, it's really just finding government officials who will do the will of, of the people. Uh, we'll continue to um, push forward different initiatives. 
working with our partners. We'll work on on different issues, and um, and then uh, regroup. Uh, you know, in New York, our session is from January through June. Um, and a lot of the legislative work that the organizations do is in that period of time. Uh, so I think that we're we, we're looking at a, an exciting year ahead for New York. Anything else? You know, the message is uh, to be engaged, to to take the spirit right now, whatever the reason. You know, people are energized, and to to take action with it. Take action whether it's through the lever or through in your community, you know, working on some of these very difficult issues that we have, um, you know, ahead of us. We have to solve child care. It's, it's such a, a such important issue for women. But if we don't speak out now um, and uh, and make uh, create an expectation of action and change, you know, then um, it's much harder to create that change. So it's an exciting time for women, I think, exciting time for New York. And um, we will, um, you know, uh, look forward to uh, some, some, we hope, some real progress um, on these issues in the future. You know, women are really collaborative um, by nature uh, in politics. There's research around this. Um, so uh, this can also, uh, this new wave of women that may came, come into office, it's not so easy, you know, to, to run against incumbents, but there are quite a number of open seats, which makes it more likely um, for, for someone new to win. Um, but a more collaborative um, uh, environment will do well for, for all of us. Um, and these are problems that, you know, people need solutions to. Um, so, uh, we you know, we need representatives who really understand the problems that folks are having, making ends meet, the increase in poverty, you know, uh, and uh, these are these are important times. So I encourage everyone to get out there and vote and then to keep up, um, you know, pushing our, our representatives to um, to take thoughtful, deep action, um, you know, to, to address the issues that you're having, um, the problems that you face, whether you're in rural New York or in, you know, in the middle of the city, New York City, you know, we're, we're, all, we're all facing very similar problems, I think. That was Beverly Neufeld, president of Power the Vote, which spotlights various issues each week leading up to the general election November 6th with expert blogs, social media outreach, and online forums each Thursday afternoon focused around Powher New York's 10 questions to ask candidates. Like many Japanese Americans of her generation, Sally Suda was forced to live in an internment camp during World War II. After her brother studied at a military language school at Fort Snelling, her family moved to Minnesota. KFAI's Joey Peters reports. This U.S. government newsreel shows well-nourished children happily drinking milk inside a World War II internment camp. Special emphasis was put on the health and care of these American children of Japanese descent. Sally Suda was there. She recalls a different reality. The buildings were so terribly built that the sand would actually come through, you know, the tar paper and settle all over on your food and everything. and that was your food to eat so you did the best you could and ate what you could and then you'd go back to your room and everything would be covered with that very fine sand. Sudo, 
who now lives in Minnesota, was just six years old when the government pried her family from their Seattle home. Well, all I remember is there was a lot of confusion, and I could see the stress on my parents' part. It was spring 1942. Just months earlier, Japan had bombed Pearl Harbor, prompting the U.S. to enter World War II. Anti-Japanese sentiment surged. So President Franklin Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066. Military authorities therefore determined that all of them, citizens and aliens alike, would have to move. The order forced 120,000 Japanese Americans into internment camps, including Sudo's family. First attention was given to the problems of sabotage and espionage. Now, here at San Francisco, for example, they were afraid of acts of espionage or sabotage, of which none was ever committed by any person of Japanese ancestry in the United States. When the government sent her family away, they rode on a train with armed guards to a desolate area in southern Idaho. When we get out, we see nothing but sand and sagebrush and greasewood. I mean, we're obviously in a very desert-like area. Her home in the camp lacked running water. Electricity consisted of a single light bulb hanging from the rafters. Sudo spent three years at the internment camp. We always opened every school day by saying the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. And, you know, it's kind of ironic that we would say in liberty and justice for all. And here we are in these prison camps. One of her older brothers enlisted in the army in 1944. His knowledge of the Japanese language placed him in the Military Intelligence Service Language School, which was located at Fort Snelling in Minnesota. People like my older siblings, they went to Japanese school after regular school. It's just like um, Jewish kids go to Hebrew school, that kind of thing. At the time, fewer than 100 Japanese Americans lived in the state. Kimi Tanaka is a historic interpreter with the Minnesota Historical Society. It's likely that Minnesotans had never really even interacted with anybody who was of Japanese descent. The military language school changed that. It brought more than 6,000 soldiers to the state. After the war, language school veterans helped grow Minnesota's Japanese-American population to more than 1,000. Sudo's brother was among them. He bought a house for the family in Minneapolis, near Minnehaha Falls. We were the first Japanese to ever move into that neighborhood. Uh, we got hate mail to begin with. We don't want any Japs in the neighborhood, you know, get out or else. However, the Lutheran church across the street welcomed them. I think it was through them that we were able to adjust as well as we did. But for Sudo, who's now 82 and lives in Edina, the psychological effects of the internment camp stayed with her for decades. I grew up with that feeling that there's something wrong with being Japanese. I kind of looked down on it. Sudo didn't embrace her ethnicity until years later. I think people today need to know how easily something like this could happen again because the next time it could be you. For KFAI, I'm Joey Peters. The mayor of Osaka, Japan, says he's ending a six-decade sister city relationship with San Francisco to protest a statue honoring women forced to have sex with Japanese soldiers during World War II. The San Francisco Examiner reports that Osaka Mayor Hirofumi Yashimura sent a letter in early October to San Francisco announcing he's withdrawing from the largely ceremonial relationship. The statue was erected on city property last year by California's Korean, Chinese, and Filipino communities. 
A spokesman for San Francisco Mayor London Breed called Yoshimura's decision unfortunate and says the cities will remain connected through people-to-people ties. Historians say tens of thousands of so-called comfort women around Asia were forced to work in brothels for Japanese troops. It remains an open rift between Japan and other Asian nations. California has become the first state to require publicly traded companies to include women on their boards of directors. Governor Jerry Brown approved the legislation September 30th that forces changes at California-based corporations by 2020. Some European countries, including France and Norway, already require corporate boards to include women. A fourth of publicly held corporations with headquarters in California do not have any women on their boards of directors. State Senator Hannah Beth Jackson says having more women on boards will make companies more successful. The Santa Barbara Democrat authored the measure. The California Chamber of Commerce has argued that the composition of corporate boards should be determined internally, not mandated by government. The chamber says the new law will prioritize gender over other aspects of diversity. As a woman in her 20s, Mandy Goff brings us a piece she calls Musical Contemplation. She uses her experience with music as a metaphor for trying to find her place in the world. She synergizes music and words as part of her journey. Most days I play the guitar. I pick it up and without any training or knowledge, I pluck around on the strings. I change the strings to odd and really strange tunings and try notes, waiting. Some days after 10 minutes, I put it down and continue my day completely unaffected. Some days, unexpectedly, a line appears out of the chaos. Sometimes it's just four notes. Sometimes I play variations of these four notes for an hour because they have this totally easy beauty. It comes to me as if it were waiting, like an eternal principle. Beauty I didn't earn, but somehow, accidentally, it's coming into the world. I had a discussion with my boyfriend about what questions should be our overarching question, by which we make decisions. His question was, how can I be the happiest? His decisions essentially flow down as answers to that question. I found myself disagreeing with him that night. The deepest guiding question for me is, how can I give back the life gifted to me? I saw my life as four notes, beauty unearned, out of the chaos, waiting. And most days, I pluck around in mediocrity, trying, Repositioning, shifting, looking, until one day out of maybe 50 days, I'm astonished by a sudden surge of unexpected brilliance, meaning and a simple sense of purpose. And on those days, my question becomes, how do I make those four notes every day? Extend, gifting back beauty, purpose, intentionality. How do 
I find my part to play? And I ask myself, how can it become a complete peace? That was Mandy Goff with her musical Contemplation. And that's our show for this week. Thanks to Patrick Garrett for production assistance. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok. Our theme music is Glow in the Dark by Kevin Bartlett. This show is a national production of Northeast Public Radio. If you'd like to hear this show again, sign up for our podcast or visit the 51% archives on our website at wamc.org. And follow us on Twitter at 51% Radio. This week's show is number 1525.